Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. EU Confidential starts right after this. Today's episode is presented by Shell. Shell supports the Commission's proposal to cut greenhouse gas emissions by 55% by 2030. This very challenging target requires measures to accelerate low- and zero-carbon technologies and infrastructure. The agreement will help us provide a strong economic response to the crisis while preserving the rule of law. Citizens and the EU economy need our support more than ever, and they need it now. Welcome to EU Confidential, Europe's number one politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in a dark, grey and rainy Brussels. Apologies for coming to you a day late this week, but we did warn you we might do that because we wanted to bring you the results of this week's EU summit, which turned into another all-nighter. We'll dive into what happened in a moment. The short version, two deals got done. One on linking EU payouts to respect for the rule of law, ending a blockade of the budget and coronavirus recovery fund by Poland and Hungary. And another on higher targets for emissions cuts by 2030. All in all, a pretty good result for Angela Merkel, wrapping up Germany's six-month stint as President of the Council of the EU. Merkel also came top this week of our Political 28 ranking of the most influential politicians in Europe. We divided them into doers, dreamers and disruptors. Maybe next year we'll add duds or dunderheads. And we encourage you to explore the full list at politico.eu. We'll include a direct link in the notes with this episode too. So, two deals done, but one, of course, hasn't been done yet on trade and other relations with the UK. We will decide on Sunday whether we have the conditions for an agreement or not. We didn't want to hold up the podcast long enough for that one, but one way or another, it's something we're bound to be talking about next week. Now, though, let's break down the last European Council summit of 2020. So let's turn first to the first big deal that the leaders did during this marathon summit. And that was, well, technically it was about uh, the recovery fund and the EU budget. But actually, everybody agreed on the recovery fund and the EU budget back in July. What was holding things up was a blockade by Poland and Hungary, who were refusing to move forward with the implementation, if you like, of uh, the budget and recovery fund because they object to something else. So that's the rule of law conditionality, as it's known in Brussels speak. 
and to uh, translate all of that for us and, and talk us through the decision, we're joined by Lily Byer, our reporter on budget and the rule of law. Hi, Lily. Hi, everyone. So, as I say, they use this, uh, you know, this uh, jargon, rule of law conditionality or conditionality mechanism, you know, all sounds quite technical. The basic idea is that payouts from the EU budget should be dependent on a country respecting the rule of law. And the measure that has been put forward is that if a country is deemed not to be doing that, then the European Commission could suspend payments. So something that's quite technical, but actually also quite fundamental, I think, about how the European Union works and what it exactly is. Is it, you know, as some people talk about it, a big cash machine or is it a community of values? And I think that's one of the reasons that this particular topic uh, became so fraught. But Lily, I wonder if you could just sum up for us what was agreed. What was the compromise to try and get round the objections that came particularly from Hungary and Poland, who felt this was aimed at them? So the compromise that was reached uh, was a text, uh, several pages long, that came as part of the summit's conclusions. Um, and the interesting thing is that the leaders did not decide to actually change the text of the regulation itself. The mechanism legally stays as it is, and it will come into effect likely next month as it was originally negotiated. But uh, what they did is they offered certain political assurances to Poland and Hungary. So they uh, emphasized that this will be used in a fair and non-discriminatory manner, which is, of course, part of the regulation, but it was in a way repeated for political purposes. Um, the main concession is that the council, or rather the leaders, have asked the European Commission not to actually implement this new rule of law mechanism, even though it will already be on the books, um, until the Court of Justice of the European Union rules on its legality. So Poland and Hungary are planning on basically challenging um, this regulation in court. They're hoping to win and basically annul the entire project. But while this case is going on, the commission would basically hold off and not recommend cutting funds. Now, it's also important to keep in mind that it's not just up to the commission to cut funding under this regulation. Uh, the commission would be making a recommendation to cut funds if it deems that certain rule of law breaches impact the financial interests of the union. That's also key to remember. It has to somehow impact the EU budget or other financial interests connected to the bloc. And then it would be up to the council acting by um, a qualified majority to actually impose sanctions. So at the end of the day, it's still up to the governments of the member states to actually cut funding. But none of this will be relevant um, under today's deal until the court rules. Right. So in a sense, it's a it's a postponement of, of this showdown, a further postponement, but it allows the, the budget and the recovery fund to go ahead. And a lot now is going to depend on that court ruling. That won't be the only thing, the only battle ahead here, but it suddenly becomes uh, very important. And that was enough, certainly, for Hungary and Poland uh, to claim victory, as in all compromises, everybody uh, can say that they got what they wanted or what was really important to them. I think we can get flavour of uh, Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban uh, congratulating his uh, 
Polish colleague, uh, Prime Minister Morawiecki, uh, and himself. So congratulations to Mateusz and to a little bit to myself as well. Anyway, uh... <laughs> And um, so in a sense, uh, both, both Poland and Hungary keen to, to show that they felt they'd, they'd got enough in terms of assurances. Here's Morawiecki laying out his main concerns at the start of the summit. Today we fear that we might be uh, attacked in an unjustified way, but of course in the future any country, Portugal or Italy, Spain, Greece, France, Austria, the Czech Republic, Hungary and the others might also be attacked. What about assurances for the other side, you know, the, the, the countries that had been very insistent on having this measure? The Netherlands, for example, the Dutch Prime Minister, uh, Mark Rutte, kind of emerged as a standard bearer here, right, Lily? What was, what was he looking for uh, and what did he get? Give us a, give us a flavour of that, at least. So Mark Rutte, who, um, as as some listeners may know, has been quite vocal on wanting to to link EU funding to the rule of law. The Netherlands, along with countries like Finland and Belgium, have been very insistent on this. What he was saying is that, first of all, he wanted to know what the European Parliament, which had been involved in negotiating this mechanism, thinks about the compromise. Uh, I want to know what the European Parliament uh, thinks of it. Uh, right now, it appears that uh, even though some members of Parliament are not exactly thrilled with the compromise, they will agree to it. Rutte also wanted assurances from the Council Legal Service um, that the conclusions don't actually change the scope of what had been agreed. I want to make absolutely sure uh, that this compromise is in no way uh, limiting uh, the uh, legal working and also the scope of uh, the regulation. Which is it looks like those assurances had been made. And he also wanted to know uh, whether this compromise would mean that even if the implementation is delayed, the commission could later retroactively basically um, recommend sanctions based on violations that happen while the court case is going on. He also appears to have gotten that assurance because the mechanism will be um, in effect rather soon on, on paper. Yeah, I thought what was interesting is that Ursula von der Leyen, the commission president, actually made a point of that, of saying, you know, no case will go unexamined. And she did that publicly in her press conference at the end of the summit. I, I do think that it's worth taking a step back as well um, and looking a bit at the reactions to the deal. And it's a bit like the movie Groundhog Day for some of us who have been covering this uh, closely, because during the, the July summit, there were also conclusions on this rule of law mechanism. And at the time, you know, officials thought, OK, here we have a deal. It's done. But also then we immediately had very different interpretations uh, from the Polish and Hungarian governments of what had been agreed. Um, so it is possible that the political debate over what today's deal means will also continue in the future and that uh, this is not going to be the last discussion we'll have on the podcast of this issue. Right. Well, maybe we can do an Angela Merkel and just play in the previous one. That's what she does when she just thinks things haven't changed. But uh, as we've as we've already assured our listeners, we would never we would never do that. OK, Lily, thanks very much. Thank you. Now I'm joined by our climate reporter, Kalina Oroshakov. Hi, Kalina. Hi, Andrew. 
So we're going to talk about one of the things that the leaders spent a lot of time talking about, and that's the climate targets that they agreed overnight uh, Thursday into Friday. So can you just start by giving us the headline? What did they actually agree? So what EU leaders agreed is to raise the EU's emissions reduction target by 2030 from the current cut of 40% to a new goal of 55%. However, that goal is also new in the sense that it would for the first time count the carbon dioxide removals that forests and other land users, for example, peatlands, can provide. And so there's this huge debate whether that target is actually as ambitious as EU leaders and EU officials say. Okay, and that's compared to 1990 levels, right? When we talk about 40%, 55%, compared to the emissions levels of 1990. Is that right? Exactly. Okay, I mean, it took all night. I was up until after three o'clock in the morning and then gave up and then, you know, woke up in the morning to discover they had just reached a deal. So, you know, why did it take all night? Who were the holdouts and what did they want and, and how much of that did they get? The issue why climate targets are so complicated is because raising emissions reduction targets is really affecting the entire economy. And for economies such as Poland or the Czech Republic or other Eastern and um, Central European economies that rely on coal or other fossil fuels, as well as poor EU economies, for them, this is quite a considerable extra effort. And so they worry that they will be saddled with extra costs and that there's no support to be had to actually speed up these emissions cuts compared to richer and greener um, EU nations. So you have that big debate going into the summit. And at the summit, of course, you have countries such as Poland, which had already signaled quite vocally in advance of the summit that they have a number of core interests, especially with regard to the emissions trading system, which is the EU's big climate instrument to put a price on carbon um, for power plants and industries and factories. And Poland, considering its coal-reliant economy, is especially worried that higher carbon prices will put an even bigger strain on its energy system. And so you could see the Polish prime minister till the early, early morning hours negotiating a deal that would allow Poland to come back home and say, yes, we will get more revenues out of the ETS in the future to actually upgrade our energy systems. Right. And we uh, it did seem like Poland was, was leading the charge here. One of our colleagues, Maya de la Baum, spoke to an EU diplomat who was very unhappy about the way that Poland had done this and didn't think this is the way that European Council should be conducted with this kind of haggling all night. Uh, of course, if you're Polish, you might think that's what I would expect my government to do. So it's just an interesting kind of difference of opinion on, on how these things should be done as much as, you know, what the issues at stake are. But there was a deadline here, right? Or or at least something that was presented as a deadline. They wanted to do this now. Why was that? Indeed, your leaders were under pressure to actually strike this deal before tomorrow, because on Saturday you have the fifth anniversary of the Paris Agreement, so the big global climate deal. That is really the, the core root of all these EU efforts to ramp up emissions targets. And so countries such as France, which of course was the host of the Paris Agreement, were very keen on striking this deal before this anniversary party. And on Saturday, you have the UN, France and UK co-hosting an event to not only celebrate the Paris Agreement, but also provide a platform for global leaders to announce higher cuts. 
And so, of course, Ursula von der Leyen, the commission president and EU leaders didn't want to be embarrassed and essentially show up with nothing to show for. Right. It sounded like it was certainly von der Leyen was presenting this as, as, as a great victory for, you know, also what she talks about, the, the overall package, the, the Green Deal and the fact that, uh, you know, she was saying financing is now secured to allow these ambitions to become reality. The launch of Next Generation EU is also a key component of our climate ambition. Now that we have secured the funding, we have the means for our actions. And that is why I'm I think in Brussels we kind of forget sometimes how big a deal some of these announcements are. Of course, with people following this day by day, by the time that the leaders strike the 55% agreement, everyone kind of expected it. But if you think just a year ago, that kind of level of ambition was pretty much unthinkable. And a year ago, also, nobody had really a clue about what 55% would mean in practice. The European Commission only came out with an impact assessment, so an analysis about the economic implications in September. And so to think that countries such as Poland, which have been extremely difficult in the past on climate policies, actually agreed to such a goal, of course, not without putting up a fight, but agreed to them and that Eastern European countries also use the language of higher climate ambition being instruments for modernizing their economy is already quite a considerable shift, um, which I think needs to be uh, accounted for. As you've just said, these, are, these are, are big changes, but they're not enough for some people, right? And some EU institutions even. They're not enough for the European Parliament, for sure, which agreed in October to, to call for a 60% cut by 2030. They say that they have science on their side. Scientists, of course... If you look at the fine print, probably would call on the EU to do even more than that. But the European Parliament is also eager to push its position. And even though now that EU leaders have agreed a goal and um, that pretty much seals the deal, you already could see MEPs being very vocal in their anticipation of a tough fight with the, with the leaders. They don't just want to roll over and accept it. Okay, well, sounds like there'll be plenty for you still to cover next year then, Kalina. Yeah, a blast. Uh, <laughs> okay, we'll leave it there for now. Thanks a lot, Kalina. Thank you very much. We'll continue our look at the summit in just a moment, but first, this short break. Today's episode is presented by Shell. Shell supports the Commission's proposal to cut GHG emissions by 55% by 2030. This very challenging target requires measures to accelerate low and zero carbon technologies and infrastructure. So I am joined now by a slightly fatigued summit coverage team or uh, two members of it, a very big team, which you would see if you uh, looked at our live blog of the coverage going through the night of the of the summit, which was really something to behold, but two names you'll recognise from there and, of course, from elsewhere. Uh, Reem Montaz in Paris. Hi, Reem. Hello, hello. And also Chief Brussels Correspondent David Herzenhorn. Hi, David. Hey there. So, listen, let's try and sum all of this up, take some stock if we can, and, uh, you know, kind of get over our sleep deprivation and just try and look at the big picture from this summit, which covered a lot of things. It covered the budget, as we've heard from Lily, and the rule of law, uh, as we've also heard from Lily. It covered climate. But also this was a kind of swan song as council president for, for Angela Merkel. Um, she's still around as German chancellor for another year. But this was the last time that she will be in charge when Germany holds the presidency of the Council of the EU. 
there was a lot on her plate and she has uh, still a bit to worry about as we as we heard right at the end let's um let's start right at the end if you like right at the end of the closing press conference of the summit when uh the European Council spokesman wished everyone safe end of year holidays and Angela Merkel couldn't help saying this who knows what happened which suggests she still has a fair bit to, to worry about, particularly when it comes to the coronavirus and the pandemic. But David, you wrote a piece along with colleagues in, in the run-up about just the pile-up of issues that Angela Merkel faced uh, going into this summit. Uh, how do you think they did? How do you think the leaders feel they did coming out of this summit? Well, she certainly feels that they did okay. And there were some poignant moments during that press conference where she made that clear. I mean, she admitted, as, as she does, uh, quite bluntly, that they were, there were disappointments. She had hoped to invite President Xi Jinping of China for a giant summit in Leipzig. Uh, there were other things that they weren't able to accomplish. But at the same time, uh, she said coronavirus obviously provided extra work, kept them busy. They were never idle. And also in that very Merkel way, and she's got this quality that really none of the other leaders quite have, where she just started out thanking everybody, saying what a great team she thought she and Ursula von der Leyen, her former defense minister, uh, their longtime colleagues and Charles Michel, uh, the council president, what a great team they had been, but also thanking even the EU ambassadors who love to toil invisibly, but have been really the last ones standing throughout this entire pandemic. Um, she just has that way of sort of recognizing everybody and, and very understated uh, taking credit. You know, and on this summit, they did accomplish what they could. In that sense, they ran the board. Climate change, got the budget done, moved some things forward, rule of law. Uh, you know, there was more they wanted to do, but what they could do, it seems they've executed. Right. And the thing that is left hanging, the thing that they barely discussed is Brexit relations with the UK, whether a deal can be done there. We've seen they can do, you know, deals uh, among themselves. Can a deal be done with the UK? That's something we're going to see, I guess, in the coming days. Uh, Reem, what was Emmanuel Macron's uh, take on the summit and what did you make of it? You know, Emmanuel Macron, I think, can go home feeling good about himself and about this European Council summit. You know, he got language on Turkey that he was very keen to have. From our standpoint, perhaps we feel there's been, you know, constructive ambiguity, which is always what helps the EU get things across the line. The other thing is, uh, you know, the deal on climate is also a big deal for Macron. Uh, not saying that this was Macron, uh, Macron's doing, but this was something he was very keen on and he got that. So we can say that he had a good, productive, successful 48 hours from where he's standing. Right. What about on the external relations, um, which was what they discussed or part of what they discussed over over dinner? David, there were two things, really, the US and Turkey. Anything jump out at you from from either of those two issues? Well, certainly we see once again on Turkey, uh, nobody is quite satisfied, right? The, the EU has been caught between uh, countries that really want to get quite a bit tougher on Turkey, especially uh, Greece, Cyprus, uh, France, we can include in that group, and others who really don't want to have open tension uh, with this important uh, neighbor right on the, on the edge of the block. Uh, you've got the U.S. Uh, statement, clearly the EU is happy to be done with Donald Trump. They can't wait until Inauguration Day and are looking forward to rebuilding transatlantic relations with Joe Biden. And of course, there was also the uh, re-upping of Russia sanctions. This is the routine renewal of sanctions against Russia for the invasion and annexation of Crimea dating back to 2014. 
But I think if we take a giant step back, you look at all these things and you say, you know, there's not any big forward motion in EU foreign policy here. The Russia stuff is kind of stuck with the US. You know, there's a little bit of rose tinted glasses there and nostalgia for a time that maybe didn't even exist prior to Donald Trump. And this question of how do they resolve, you know, these very different uh, views on what to do about Turkey. Yeah, Reem, do you want to, I think you were, I don't know if you've still got it there, we were reading some of the language on on uh, Turkey just before we started recording. I think it's actually just quite good because if you were someone who does not follow this stuff super closely, and actually even if you do, the whole point is it's not clear, but imagine if you were just someone who, you know, pays the occasional bit of attention to an EU summit and were to look at the conclusions, maybe you can just read us a bit of the text there and see if anyone would be able to understand what's actually been agreed. So let me read that. It's The paragraph we're looking at is paragraph 30. Recalling the October 1st and 2nd European Council conclusions, the EU remains committed to defending its interests and those of its member states, as well as to upholding regional stability. In this respect, the European Council invites the Council to adopt additional listings based on its decision of November 11th, 2019, concerning restrictive measures in view of Turkey's unauthorized drilling activities in the Eastern Mediterranean. And so if you did not understand that paragraph, you were not alone. What is interesting and emerging is that even among EU member states that negotiated this paragraph, their understanding is quite divergent. I asked President Macron during his press conference right after the end of the summit, you know, what had actually uh, been achieved here concretely? Bonjour, Monsieur le Président. Uh, vous avez parlé d'un test de crédibilité et uh, d'après ce qu'on comprend... Because it seems, you know, that the referral to the new sanctions, uh, so what's, what's called here restrictive measures, they never say sanctions, listings of restrictive measures. Don't say sanctions. Measures, yeah, never sanctions. don't mention the S-word. Never sanctions. So in Macron's view, that means that there will be So the decision has been made to impose new sanctions, targeted sanctions on individuals, you know, related to Turkey's drilling activities in the exclusive economic zone of Cyprus within a few weeks. That is what he is saying. Others are asking who is going to be targeted when are these sanctions going to t- take effect? How far ranging are they going to be? Right, I guess that's it. The next step is the US comes in. Do we see a more kind of joined up approach to Turkey at that point? And bearing in mind that the you know the EU27 are kind of struggling to be joined up there, that would certainly be a challenge. Any final thoughts, David? No, I think there, you know, we one big takeaway from this summit is that we continue to see these tensions with Poland and Hungary, the sort of uh, problem children of the club in recent uh, months and years even. And we really need to keep an eye on where that's going. You know, uh, the uh, senior leadership in the EU has expressed some sensitivity, some sympathy to the fact that Hungary and Poland feel targeted. They feel like they are being put in a corner sometimes, accused of uh, backsliding on rule of law, democracy principles, and quite a a lot of other member states, I would say the the majority of them, who think those countries absolutely should be put in a corner and maybe flogged on top of it because they have been holding the others hostage, uh, extorting things out of them that they don't want to get involved in. I mean, this deal on the budget was done in July and had to be redone now five months later because Poland and Hungary essentially went back on a general agreement to have this rule of law mechanism. So those inner tensions are something to watch as we see Brexit come to an end and maybe that cause for unity there among the 27 fall away 
how will they do keeping unity when there aren't the Brits to line up against anymore? Right. Well, we'll st- we'll still be there, you know, lurking offshore, but that may not be quite enough. Okay, listen, let's let's leave it there and let you and uh, get some rest after after a very long 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 night. Actually, David, uh, just before we let you go, um, let me ask you to set up an interview uh, you did earlier this week with the Spanish Foreign Minister. Uh, tell us a little bit about where you met her and, and what you talked about. Well, it feels like a year ago, but Christine and I sat down with Arancha Gonzalez Laya who is Spain's foreign minister, has had a variety of jobs in Brussels and talked to her really about the full range of issues, including uh, tensions in the Mediterranean and transatlantic relations, also Brexit, which she said showed the illusion of independence. Quite an interesting conversation. Great. Let's hear that now. I think you start on the Eastern Mediterranean, so we'll go in there. For Spain, what happens in the Eastern Mediterranean is a neighborhood issue. It's not a distant issue. It's a Mediterranean issue. The Mediterranean region, the southern neighborhood of the European Union, is a test case of uh, the so-called strategic autonomy of the European Union, which to me is our ability to deal with the challenges posed in our closest neighborhood. And if we do not do that, we've seen a recent example of this in Libya. When we left the space, we were not united for a start, and then we left the space. Well, others occupy the space. Other countries have been trying to resolve an issue that we didn't, to which we didn't pay enough political attention. So to me, behind all of this is our whether or not we are capable of putting political energy into uh, this neighborhood. Let's talk about uh, strategic autonomy. I wanted to ask you about NATO too, but let's talk, since you mentioned this debate, which sometimes strikes me as a, a false choice, mm-hmm. as if European autonomy, Europe, Europe being able to protect and defend itself, is is a choice between close relations with the United States or not. And isn't, in a way, strategic autonomy doesn't allow Europe to really stand on its own and still have the best of of relationships and alliances and friendships? I think you're absolutely right. The strategic autonomy is uh, today is been portrayed as having to choose between allies or having to choose even between uh, engaging and not engaging. I mean, for me, strategic autonomy is pretty simple. It's the ability of the EU to be more solid and more solid, not just on the defense side, where we are little by little becoming more solid, but not alone we are doing this in a more intelligent combination between what we do as Europeans and what we do in NATO. And obviously what we do in NATO is much bigger than what we're doing as Europeans, but what we do as Europeans also count. But it's not just about defense and security. It's also about the digital economy. It's also about the international role for the euro. It's also about energy. It's also about international trade. All of this is part of our own version of a strategic autonomy, which is our ability to stand on our two feet. And this is necessary because we are entering into an era of greater geopolitical competition. And in an era of geopolitical competition, either you're capable of standing on your two feet and then build the alliances that will help you uh, manage uh, your posture and your position in the world, or you'll just become the playing field of others. And we've discovered this in the last four years. And this is why this discussion about strategic autonomy is not 
a strategic autonomy is not an agenda against uh, engaging with the US. As a matter of fact, I think one of the issues we need to do more urgently is build a new transatlantic agenda, uh, which we have also been sorely missing. But it's about Europe being clearer about where it stands and how we can uh, project uh, what Europe is. Talk to me about how you would envision and how you think Spain envisions a new transatlantic relationship. It seems sometimes here in Brussels, at least, there's a nostalgia for for something that didn't exist. The, the lenses are quite are quite rosy. I don't get that sense from um, from the high representative, from Joseph Borrell. But I think Spain remembers perhaps better than others that there were some times in the Bush years when things were not so easy either, that, that Trump was a little bit louder um, and more chaotic, but that in fact the EU and the U.S. have never have seen perfectly eye to eye. And is there, do you see a risk that there's sometimes too much of a rush back to, oh, our good friends, where have you been? When in fact, you have to keep the, those, diff- those old differences in mind. This is, for us, the, rela- the transatlantic relation is a crucial relationship. And what we see is that this relationship had a compass. Uh, after the Second World War, it was about uh, fighting against totalitarianism. And it then moved into working together to spread democracy around the world. And then it mo- moved into um, spreading globalization and jointly advocating for globalization. And I have to say, uh, lately, the transatlantic relation has been without a compass. There was no joint objective that we were advancing together. There was more a fight uh, between us, really, than uh, advancing things together. Not that we haven't had the fight. I mean, I've been in this business for many years. I still remember when I was in Brussels and we had uh, the Boeing Airbus fights and the fights over banana and over bananas and over steel. I mean, in the, in the area of trade, there's always been conflict. But that's not the point. If you have a more than one billion a day trade relationship, you're bound to have conflicts. But what we don't have now is we have many trade conflicts. We've got many conflicts uh, in the area of the economic, on the economic side. But we don't have a joint project that we are, want to advance together. What should that project be? It's, it's very interesting how you're describing it. it. If it's not the spread of democracy and it's now not the, the push of globalization, which we've seen has pluses and minuses, how would you characterize what that objective might be? What are, what are some options for, for summing it up if you, if you try to? Well, if I had to describe it, I would say what we could and should do together is to rehumanize globalization because both of us feel that the globalization that has been such an incredible source of energy, of uh, economic uh, progress, of lifting millions and billions out of poverty has also now bumped into serious constraints. Climatic constraints, huge inequalities, a digital economy that is leaving many behind. Uh, in its, you know, many parts of our middle classes that are the backbone of our economies, whether it's in the US or in Europe, that feel disenchanted with the way the economy and democracy is working. So in a way, what we can do and what we should be doing is uh, have a joint endeavor at rehumanizing globalization, ensuring that the economic part of it keeps working, but that we also make sure that we tackle inequalities, 
that we don't leave citizens behind by the side of the road, that we work together to respond to the enormous risks posed by climate change, that we work to ensure digital is the norm for everybody, that we work to make our democracy and our democratic systems uh, more solid. This is what, and that we do this in an open manner, making sure that we don't just do it for ourselves, but we do it with a sense of, uh, you know, we, we are in the world also. As any, anybody who's attended the Columbus Day Parade in New York City, as I have, knows the, the long historic ties that you, mm-hmm. that you talk about, not to, uh, to raise too many Anglo-Saxon headaches, but Brexit <laughs> <laughs> is on everybody's agenda this week. Spain, of course, as much as any of the EU27, has strong, strong connections and ties uh, to the UK. Many Brits living in parts of Spain. Uh, Gibraltar is another complication. A few thoughts on on what it's hard to know uh, where we're headed. The next things could change in the next 24 to 36 hours. But this process, maybe, what has it taught us in Spain about what this relationship will look like, deal or no, or no deal? Well, what it has shown uh, at the heart of it is that the illusion of independence and the need to manage interdependence. And this is why we need a deal, because we need to manage our interdependence. It's okay to continue to insist on the dream of independence. It's fine. But when you look at reality every day, you know that The vaccine is going to be invented somewhere, is going to be bottled somewhere else, is going to be shipped around the world. And until all of this happens, you are not going to be safe and your citizens will not be safe. I'm taking this as an example. I could take many others. But I think, at least from a very pragmatic Spain, uh, we have always maintained that a deal was much more desirable than uh, breaking up without a deal. And this because we looked at the consequences of what this no deal would mean. In Spain, it's pretty clear there will be a border between in Gibraltar. They will be, this will become the external border of the European Union. And this will have impact uh, for Gibraltarians as well as for Spaniards in the region. We know that, uh, we know what it will mean for shipments of fruits and vegetables. We know what it will mean for the activities of banks and uh, automobile factories. And because we know all of this, it's called interdependence. Our obligation is to find a deal. Now, that's not a deal at any cost. You know, I've been a trade negotiator, so I know that then we quickly got, get into a, you know, yeah, but it cannot be at any cost. Fine. We need to find a deal that is balanced. We know that it will be less ambitious than what we had hoped for because the appetite is simply not there. Fine. But at the end of the day, let's find a deal. It, we owe it to our businesses and we owe it to our people today, adding more turbulence to the current extremely volatile economic and social environment will only make matters worse. Thanks to David for bringing us that conversation with Spanish Foreign Minister Arancha Gonzalez. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. We'll be back next week with our final episode of the year. Don't miss it. A, f- a bit of a retrospective with Matt and Reem. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you get it as soon as it drops. And you can always send us your feedback. The email address is podcast at politico.eu. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to our producer, Christina Gonzalez, and thanks to you for listening.
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.